I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. A couple weeks ago, my wife had wanted to go to a bookstore. You know, a, a rare treat these days with uh, the lack of them. And so we went to uh, Romans in Pasadena. It's one of our favorite bookstores. And uh, as my wife was looking around, trying to pick out whatever it is that she wanted from the trip, I uh, walked around as well and found myself in the Eastern philosophy section. And in the Eastern philosophy section, they have the Buddhist section, which usually has a lot of the same books. There usually isn't a whole lot of new books there, but I, I look anyway, you know, just to see if there's anything that catches my eye. And while I was there, uh, I did see something. There was a book there that had a very garish and bright cover and a little kind of cartoon on the front and a very alliterative name. And I thought, oh, let me take a look at this one. And I, I perused through the book and, and grasp more or less what it's about. And the author is a 33-year-old Western man who, when he was 25, went to the Thai forest to stay at a monastery there for about six months. And he decided to write about his experience. And I thought, oh, how neat that there's a, a book like this that's still around, published by someone, you know, pretty young, actually. You know, uh, it seems like those kind of books were more popular uh, 20, 30 plus years ago, maybe even more years ago, where you'd find someone who would say to the audience, audience hey, spiritual seeker, you know that place that you've been fantasizing about, this really remote place where there's all this cool spiritual stuff happening? I went there and let me tell you about it. And so it was uh, almost refreshing and uh, nostalgic to see someone doing this yet again. Like, hey, have you ever thought about going to the forest to meditate? Well, I did it. Let me tell you about it. And, uh, and so I, I decided to buy the book. I, I didn't have any high hopes for it. And, you know, by no means am I going to give you some at length uh, book review on it. But I, I bought it thinking, well, this might be fun to read. And then I didn't really read much of it. I, I read a little bit here and there. And I wasn't sure if I would actually have enough time to read the whole thing because I'm actually quite a slow reader these days. I tend to read a couple pages and then stop reading for a bit to think about what I read, read a couple pages, and then think for more time. And in the same time I do that, my, my wife has completely devoured a book. So I, I'm a pretty slow reader. But then, luckily, my wife and I got uh, sick with uh, a stomach flu. We had food poisoning. And so then I had a lot of time. And so I made sure to read the book. And uh, it ended up being a, a lot of what I thought. It was, uh, you know, a Western guy who didn't know a whole lot about meditation, who didn't know a, lot, know a whole lot about Buddhism, that went off to do some stuff for six months and went in with a lot of misconceptions and left with a lot of misconceptions. And that's more or less all I'll say about the book. But I, what I found troubling um, in the book was 
this particular man's uh, views in regard to why he chose the forest tradition in the first place, and also the ways in which he viewed the Buddha, which I think are misconceptions worth uh, straightening out, so to speak. Uh, one misconception was that the forest tradition uh, exists to be essentially a kind of Buddhist boot camp, you know, that it's rigorous and hard and difficult and challenging and not for all the little wimps out there who can't hack it, you know. No, this is where the real stuff happens. And uh, that's not really the case. And, and the fact that it even wasn't the case there in Thailand it was actually a, a bit of concern for the author. But then the other thing, too, that this author had was this obsession and romanticization of uh, the Buddha's time before he became the Buddha, when he was still uh, a monk just trying to figure things out, like a lot of people try to figure things out, when he was doing his austerities. This is what this, this guy was really, really, really on about. And he ended up with this one story, and I, I don't know where he found this story. It could be that the story is in the commentaries and just managed to find its way around or um, is something that he heard at some center somewhere else, but he's pretty convinced that the Buddha, towards the end of his austerities, was walking around one day and was so weak that he fell face first into like a cow pie, into like some manure or something, just just face planted right into, into some, some feces on the street. And it's not something that I had ever read anywhere, and it's not something that I had been familiar with, but this, this person took this story as an example of just like, wow, how hardworking the Buddha was, how much he was, he was striving and, and agonizing and suffering, and like, that's what, that's what real spirituality looks like. That's what it means to, to be a seeker. And, and so this person, when he went off on his journey, tried to find ways of doing similar things, you know, starving himself to the point where he was becoming thin. And monks were concerned for him, and he just was arrogantly like, oh, you guys don't get it, what I'm doing here, you know. And that stuff is quite dangerous. And so I wanted to talk about that particular time in the Buddha's life so that we recognize it not as something that should be romanticized, not something that we should look at and, and covet as if that's something that he was doing the, the right way. That when the Buddha shares that particular period of his life, he's sharing stuff that he did wrong. He's, he's showing his mistakes as a teacher to his students, saying like, look, this is something I did that was not useful. And I ended up finding something much better, and that's what I'm going to share with you. And so, in light of that, there, there is uh, one sutta in particular where the Buddha does talks about, talk about his, his progression, his time uh, before he became the Buddha. And it's in the Majjhima Nikaya. And this one is the uh, Maha uh, Sachika Sutta. And this one is uh, one of those cases where the, the Buddha takes some time to talk to someone that perhaps other teachers wouldn't have, have spoken to. So the reason why this sutta is called the Mahasachika Sutta is because Satchika was a uh, Niganta. He was a Jain. And 
more than that, he was known as a particular kind of, of sophist. Like he was, an, he was an argumentative guy. He liked to go around to spiritual teachers and really put them to the test, put them through the ringer. He wanted to find people and poke holes in their philosophies, their beliefs, their practices. And, uh, and that's, that's where he found his delight, that his joy. And most people would usually just walk by this guy. They didn't want to get involved. And so this story uh, happens at such a time when the Buddha is walking around with his attendant, Ananda, and they both see that Sachika is coming their way. And so he and Ananda talk about it, and then they both decide, all right, well, what we're going to do is we're actually going to wait for this guy. So they take a seat and wait for this guy to come up. And sure enough, he sees the Buddha, and he goes, ah, I'm going to go talk to him. And he comes before the Buddha and starts talking right away about, hey, you know, there's this spiritual path, this spiritual path. They do it this way. They do it that way. I see traditions in some cases where people are really good about uh, developing the body, but they don't develop the mind, and they have all sorts of bad consequences from that. And then I see other traditions, and they really develop the mind, but they don't develop the body, and they have all sorts of, of repercussions from that, you know, coughing up blood and things like that. He brings up all these really powerful images that are perhaps hyperbole. They're maybe not things that actually happen, but he's in this negative sense of like, this is what happens when people have an, an imbalanced path. And then so the Buddha talks about how what he teaches is something that's, that's balanced. It's something that develops both the body and, and the mind and leads to release. And that, that path that he has and the release that it, that it leads to is, is such that even when negative uh, feelings, when, even when painful feelings happen in, in body and mind, someone who's free of defilements, free of hindrances, ends up being unaffected. And, uh, you know, this, this interlocutor, this, this guy this who, who wants to debate the Buddha says, well, you know, maybe that's the case, you know, for you because you've never really had to deal with those kind of negative feelings, bodily pain, mental afflictions, maybe you've never had to deal with any of that stuff. And the Buddha's like, really? All right, well, let me tell you. And so that's when the Buddha starts talking about his path as, as a meditator, as a, a spiritual seeker. And he starts from the very beginning. He starts from when uh, he, was, he was a young man and looking at the, the householder's life and seeing it as something really not worthwhile, something that he didn't want. And so years later, he makes the choice to actually leave. And he talks about how his family is crying as he's shaving off his hair and putting on the ochre robes. But then he goes off and does it. And the very first thing that the Buddha does is he actually goes out and tries to find teachers. He didn't strike out on his own, which is oftentimes the, the sort of romanticized story that we hear is that he throws on the robes, shaves off his head, and his hair, and then immediately goes off into austerities. He goes off into the forest to lose his mind and starve himself. And that's not actually the case. That wasn't the first thing that he tried. What he did first was to find reputable teachers, teachers that were very skilled, that had a large following of students who seemed to be wise and seemed to be released. He goes to one such teacher and becomes a student there. And he's a good student, so really quickly he gets very good at chanting all the right chants, learning all the right words, doing all the right practices. 
and then goes to the teacher and wants to know more about what the teacher has in terms of meditation. And this first teacher that he goes to has actually a, a pretty uh, advanced um, state of meditation that he can reach. It's one of the uh, formless attainments known as the, the dimension of nothingness. And so this teacher tells the Buddha, like, yeah, you, you, you practice this way and, and you're going you're gonna to realize all the things you need to realize. You're going to be free in all the ways you can be free. So, like, let's, let's practice this and, and see what happens. And, of course, because the Buddha being the student he is, he excels at it. He excels at the dimension of nothingness, becomes a master of it, goes to his teacher again, and, it, and the teacher says, yeah, you've realized everything I've realized. There's nothing else to teach you. You can be a teacher alongside me. The Buddha looks inside himself and says, okay, well, I could stay here and be, be a teacher with this guy and teach the community that he has, but I don't feel like I'm free. I don't feel like I'm free of defilements. I don't feel like I've achieved what it is I'm seeking to achieve. So he goes to another teacher. And this teacher is perhaps even more advanced. This teacher has, has achieved uh, even a higher state, the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. Wow. Like that's, like when we talk about formless attainments, there can be many, many different attainments. We tend to talk about mostly four of them, the, the, these formless attainments being uh, the dimension of the infinitude of space, the dimension of the infinitude of consciousness, the dimension of nothingness, and the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. So like, whoa, like these are, these are states that people can achieve, and because they're so high, these attainments, people can mistake this for the real deal. They can mistake this for release. And so the same pattern follows. The Buddha puts into practice this style of meditation, manages to achieve the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. But then the same thing happens. He looks inside and he goes, nah, I don't, really, I don't really feel what this guy is saying. He's saying, I've done it. This is it. This is the best I can do. But this doesn't really feel like the best. And it's only after that that he says, you know what, I think I'm going to strike out on my own. And then he does. And he goes off and, and travels around for a while. He ends up finding a, a grove and a really pretty area that's right outside a, a, like a, a military town. And he, he looks at this place and, and sees how pretty it is. And he goes, you know what, this is a place worth uh, settling down into practice. I'm going to practice here. And uh, during that time, he, he has this, this insight that he feels is important. You know, in the sutta itself, he, he, he talks about how, like, these really weren't thoughts that someone told me and, and taught me. They just they came, they, came, they came from my own mind. And they're, they're similes about what's required to really develop on the path. He imagines what someone would need if they were trying to start a fire, what kind of wood they would need. And so he imagines that there's someone who's looking for firewood, and they find uh, a piece of wood floating in the water that's all waterlogged and filled with sap. And he's like, well, how, how well would that work to, to start a fire? Well, not very well at all. Like, it's not going to produce any, any flames. And he imagines that that's basically the, the run-of-the-mill person. That's the kind of person that's living a, a normal life with no real concern for their spiritual development, and they're still caught up in sensuality, both bodily and mentally. And they're just living in, in the muck of it, just in the midst of it, not, not trying to remove or seclude themselves in any way. 
And then he imagines, okay, well maybe there's another branch of wood, this time not sitting in the water. It's, it's actually off to the edge, it's not near the water. But it's still damp and, and wet and filled with sap. Well, how might that one go about being a firewood? Is that going to be very useful? Well, it's still damp and filled with sap, so it's not really going to produce any strong flames. Because the way he imagines it, well, this is like the, the person who has uh, removed themselves bodily from uh, sensuality, but in their minds, inside, internally, just still swirling with sensuality. Thoughts, desires, feelings, everything. They're, all, they're just a storm inside, even though they've removed themselves. They've gone off somewhere to seclude themselves bodily. We can imagine that this is someone who even follows precepts and tries to do things in action, but inside, none of that stuff has actually taken, taken root at all in terms of, of sensuality. And then he imagines a third piece of wood. This one, not only is it really far away from any water, it's perfectly dry inside. There's no dampness in the wood, there's no sap. This one's gonna burn bright. If you try to start a fire at this one, there, it'll be a smokeless fire, the heat will be so strong, that's, that's the, like, like the, contem the cont uh, contemplative. That's like the, the Brahmin who has uh, removed himself bodily and mentally, withdrawn himself bodily and mentally from, uh, from sensuality. That's the kind of person that can really, really see results from meditation. And so this was a true insight. He was correct to see this. But then his immediate thoughts after that end up leading him astray because he takes those things to an extreme. That's when he starts his austerity practice. It's with that in mind, I'm going to remove sensuality bodily and mentally. So he sets to work. He decides he's going to sit down and meditate in such a way where he's pressing his tongue up to the roof of his mouth. He's just right there, just bearing down as hard as he can. And all with, with the desire to stamp down and suppress any thoughts of sensuality. And the thing is, in terms of any sensual thoughts, it actually works. He, he realizes that like, wow, like my mind, no thoughts are coming up in terms of sensuality, but my body's a wreck. He's like, I'm pressing down in this way, I'm starting to sweat from my armpits, I'm starting to get a headache, my body's all racked with pain as I get up for meditation, like this is, this is awful. And he goes, you know what, maybe, maybe I, can, I can really just push through this and, and be even more severe. And that's when he gets to a whole different practice. He decides then, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start uh, withholding my breath during my meditation. What that means is that I want to get to a breathless state, and what I'm going to do is rather than see if I can get the, the air so light in my body, the breath so gentle and refined that perhaps any sensation of breath goes away. No. Literally, I'm going to plug everything up and see what happens. So that means when he sits down to meditate, he, he doesn't breathe through his nose, he doesn't breathe through his mouth, he just kind of holds it all in as much as he can, and he talks about the sensations he feels, how his head starts pounding, he can feel all this pressure in his body, he feels faint, his, his flesh feels hot. He's miserable as he's doing this, realizing that like, man, my body is just, just hurting. And he looks at his mind again and he goes, well, I mean, there are no thoughts of sensuality coming in, so like, I guess maybe this is, this is doing something, but perhaps I'm not doing enough. And he goes even further into an extreme. And so it's at this part that I'll read it because I, I want to capture 
just precisely in as far as we have the Buddha's words in terms of what he did. I thought, what if I were to take only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time, of bean soup, lentil soup, vetch soup, or pea soup? So I took only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time, of these soups. My body became extremely emaciated. Simply from my eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. My backside became like a camel's hoof. My spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the jutting rafters of an old run-down barn. The gleam of my eyes appeared to be sunk deep in my eye sockets, like the gleam of water deep in a well. My scalp shriveled and withered like a green bitter gourd, shriveled and withered in the heat and wind. The skin of my belly became so stuck to my spine that when I thought of touching my belly, I grabbed hold of my spine as well. And when I thought of touching my spine, I grabbed hold of the skin of my belly as well. If I urinated or defecated, I fell over on my face right there. Simply from my eating so little, if I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair rotted at its roots fell from my body as I rubbed, simply from eating so little. So perhaps that book I was talking about, this guy got this impression of uh, the Buddha falling over into some feces because in here he does say that he was so emaciated and so weak that when he himself had uh, the ability, even with the little food he was drinking and eating, uh, to, to urinate or, or defecate, the effort of it was so extreme that he would collapse. He would fall over. And so that is a practice that, that he was doing because of that simile that he had come up with. Because he had rightly recognized that if someone really wants to develop in, in meditation and achieve any goal of release or freedom, they have to uh, have states free of, of sensuality during the meditation, but then as they approach the goal to be truly free of, of sensuality, free of all kinds of craving and, and clinging, but sensuality as a hindrance to meditation is quite, quite important to focus on. But he took it to that extreme, took it to that point of, of doing all these terrible things to his body. And so he starts thinking about all this that he had done to himself, he, and he thought of how deep his pain was in his own body, how afflicted he was. He said that whatever contemplatives or Brahmins in the present are feeling pain, painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, this is the utmost. He, he thought, this is the most pain I could possibly give myself. And he says, none is greater than this. But with this racking practice of austerities, I haven't attained any superior human state any distinction in knowledge or vision worthy of the noble ones, could there be another path to awakening? So when we think about why the Buddha shares this part of his story, it's not something that we should look at as, oh, this is what I need to do as well. And, and the thing is, we, we hear this extreme case and we go, well, sure, I, I'm, I'm not going to 
to starve myself and oh well sure I'm not going to sit there trying to plug up my nostrils and, and my ma- and, you know tape my mouth over and everything but that first part that he did before he got to the most extreme of his austerities is actually something that many of us do when we first approach meditation which is that we think they're just sort of sitting here and forcing things down we're going to have any success in that the whole process of sitting there with your your jaw tight and your tongue pressed up to the roof of your mouth your your shoulders up i heard that description and what it reminded me most of is new meditators because a lot of the time when i've when i've first started as a meditator when i look at other new meditators there's this idea that i'm going to sit here and just through my force of will, things are going to happen a certain way. That just pushing things down, things are going to stay down. And that's a kind of austerity that we might end up bringing to our practice. This, this belief that we have to, in, in any way, torture ourselves in the practice. That we think that that's what real renunciation is. That that's what we think real equanimity even is. That what we need to do is just kind of sit there and grit our teeth. Because, you know, we're in some kind of uh, Buddhist boot camp, you know, let's say, in the case of this, of this one guy. So I do think that when the Buddha shares that story, what's important there is not looking at him and, and seeking to emulate him in that austerity. It's what he realized after the fact. I thought... I recall once when my father of the Sakyan, my father the Sakyan, was working, and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Then, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Could that be the path to awakening? Then there was the consciousness following on that memory. That is the path to awakening, I thought. So why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful qualities? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful qualities. But that pleasure is not easy to achieve with a body so extremely emaciated. And so he seeks then to strengthen his body. So in that sutta, the the Buddha in sharing his own story is also highlighting precisely in what way one is developing both body and mind. It's not that we neglect the body in favor of the mind. And it's not that we neglect the mind in favor of the body. But rather that we see both as part of a team that needs to function well. Oftentimes, in terms of meditation, we talk about uh, samatha and vipassana as being like two oxen tied together, pulling a cart. But in terms of cultivation as well, we can also look at the body and mind doing precisely that same thing yoked together in a particular practice. And something like breath meditation, the breath is the yoke that brings body and mind together. And we can't 
not only, not only can we not neglect one over the other, but any kind of austerity that negatively affects one or the other couldn't possibly be good practice. In terms of what we think the path is, I think what's really important to keep in mind is what the Buddha says here about pleasure. Because I have to admit that for the longest time in my own practice, I thought that any kind of, of pleasure or happiness was something that needed to be completely tossed aside, couldn't be considered important in any way. If it came up, it was something that was just another thing that came up. It's just ephemeral and, 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 you, and you cast it aside. When the Buddha is talking about his middle way, though, it's precisely this issue of someone being that, that uh, you know, worldly person caught up not doing anything and the person who is completely caught up in austerities. This middle way is actually around the whole process of, of rapture and pleasure in the first place. That what we see in the path is not a, a path of denial and a path of repression, not something strict or, or harsh or limiting. That everything we do in terms of our, our bodily action, our thoughts, our words, all three modes of action that we do, everything that we do on the path is to allow to find pleasure that is non-sensual, to find pleasure that is harmless to ourselves. The kind of things that don't trap, trap us and, and keep us stuck in samsara, but the kind of happiness that makes the path possible. And so I can see how uh, throughout the year so far, I've, I've had that as a theme that, is a, that has been a part of many of my talks. And I bring, in, I bring it up with a good reason, because this is a, is a, a true problem that I, I think that many Westerners face in, in terms of Buddhism. And I, I, for a while, thought perhaps it was a problem of the past. But if uh, a young... 30-something as well can have these same notions of, of what the path looks like in terms of how strenuous it is and how, how kind of macho it is to, to, to follow these austerities, then perhaps it, it is worth stating again that what the Buddha taught was a, a path to happiness that also in, in it contains happiness as an important part that needs to be highlighted, reminded uh, reinforced continually, lest we forget what it is that we're trying to do. That this kind of effort that we use in the path is not uh, a middling effort. It doesn't mean that we are permissive in terms of what we do, but it's also not so deeply uh, repressive and, and, and forceful that we end up essentially cutting ourselves off and suffering uh, End, endlessly and, and without really any, any real, I suppose, without any real result, real reason to do it. This misconception that this person had in the book I was referencing before end up, ended up coloring his whole experience. And what it meant is that when he saw monks practicing and actually enjoying their lives as a monk, 
he was actually critical of what he saw. What that meant is that when he was staying at, the, at one of the monasteries and he thought he was going to be Mr. Badass Meditator, and he was actually invited to a sauna that the monks were going to, it was actually on the, on the monastery grounds, he was aghast, disgusted, like, what, they're going to go to the sauna? And so he goes to the sauna. The monks have a little room there that they heat up, the nice steam to help cleanse the pores and keep the body healthy. And he goes inside and he's sitting with the monks and he's just like, can't believe they're doing this. And it, at, at one point, um, there's a, a young monk who sees one of the senior monks and offers to give the senior monk a back rub. And so this, this guy who's just staying for a short amount of time looks at this behavior and he's just like, oh my goodness, look how sensual this all is. We're in the sauna and there's this monk just rubbing the back of another monk, right? And he, he, he ends up, his perceptions color the whole experience. So rather than just having this nice, enjoyable evening that everyone else is having, you know, they're, they're following everything else. They're having one meal a day. They're, you know, following all the precepts. They meditate. And they're just having a nice evening, you know, just enjoying the sauna. And then they're going to go back to their, their kutis. They're going to go back to their practice. And the whole experience is going to be over. For this guy, it ends up becoming this whole scandalous affair that he can't believe is happening. And then, quite ironically, later on, he ends up getting into a, a, an accident that ends up injuring his neck. And so that same young monk offers to give him a back rub. And he's like, oh yeah, this feels okay. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's the point. That there are things that we do in life that do feel okay. And those things that we do, so long as, as they are harmless, so long as, as they avoid all the, the traps and snares that the precepts exist to, to, to save us from, then they are harmless things that we do. And it's okay to then enjoy those things without getting caught up. We don't want to be like the, the damp wood where the wood itself is removed from all the sensuality, but the sensuality is still swirling inside. So in many ways, the, what we seek to do is living a kind of lifestyle. And it's that lifestyle that ended up really confusing this guy that I've been talking about because he seemed quite shocked that when he spoke to this monk who had been practicing this particular tradition, for, at that point, several decades, you know, he asks him, like, well, like, how is it to live this life? And this guy says, oh, it's like a dream. And this guy writing this book couldn't believe it. Like, a dream? Like, it just seems so cliche. And he thinks about it more and goes, oh, well, maybe. But the thing is, is that when the Buddha talks about the practice that he started at that point, after he put austerities aside, and he talks about the monks and and lay people that were practicing with him over the course of his life, for the rest of his life as a teacher, he talks about how happy everyone is. And why is that something that we neglect in the West? Why is it that when, there, and it's not all Westerners, but there is this tendency in some of us to want to go to extremes. We think that, that everything is, is all or nothing. And what that ends up meaning is that in our practice too, the things that we enjoy either have to be all or nothing. That means that when we sit down to meditate, it has to be either all or nothing. And this can have so many examples, even in terms of, of thoughts. We've been taught in the West so long that meditation means 
the mind is completely blank and empty. And that's what makes us sit there like that with our tongues plastered to the roof of our mouths, squinting so hard that we start to sweat and perspire. Because we believe that meditation means no thoughts. Rather than recognizing that meditation means that we choose our thoughts carefully in terms of which ones we listen to and which ones we don't. And as we do that, our thoughts become more rarefied. They fall further into the background until the thoughts, in any kind of coarse way, uh, disappear entirely. And what we're left with is equanimity and mindfulness. So this is another reminder, I suppose, of the benefits of the gradual path that the Buddha discovered and that the Buddha set out as the path that leads to release. I think it's, it's useful to uh, keep that in mind as we seek to emulate him. What we're not emulating is his austerity. What we're emulating is what he did after. That's what led to his release.